Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to The Schmooze, a podcast of JGSI, the Jewish Graduate Student Initiative, discussing Jewish executive leadership. And we are here today with Rob Goldstein, who is chairman and CEO of Las Vegas Sands. Thank you uh, very much for being here today, Rob. It's a great honor to have you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And thank you to all those of you tuning in from our student and alumni audience, from all the grad students across North America. And uh, we provide Jewish programming to about 130 campuses, including in Las Vegas, where Rob is located, and uh, here in Los Angeles, where I'm calling in from. This is Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, your host. And today we'll be discussing Rob's career trajectory and, uh, and some inspiring words of wisdom to the next generation of Jewish executives just like Rob. So, <laughs> Okay. Thanks let's, again, let's Rob. Let's be hopeful. <laughs> let's be hopeful. Uh, Rob, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and, and um, your upbringing, a little bit about how you got into what you're doing uh, today with your career, and, and what is it exactly that you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. I grew up in Philadelphia, actually outside a place called Lower Bucks County. I was, I was, uh, I was born in Philadelphia. I lived in Cheltenham, and my father got some money from the GI Bill. He went out to uh, Lower Bucks County in the late 50s. I was born in 55. And I uh, uh, went to school there and uh, had a typical, you know, 60s suburban uh, upbringing. A lot of neighbors full of, uh, it was a very mixed neighborhood of Jews, Italians, Greeks, even some Chinese. It was a very interesting upbringing, very, uh, a lot of ethnicity. There wasn't a lot of um, uh, non-ethnics there. Um, my, I got in the, I went to school in Philadelphia and then transferred out to the Chamonix High School. Um, the only thing about my background that maybe find interesting is how I got into the gambling business. It's, it's a weird, uh, my father was a small entrepreneur. He had everything from diners to delicatessens to roofing businesses, you name it, he did it. He had no education. His parents came from Russia. Um, he graduated high school, had no capital. So he's a, a kind of a guy had to survive by his wits. And he um, made a lot of money for a guy at that time in, in his life, but had one very bad habit. He gambled uh, terrifically and on everything. He loved to play cards. And when his businesses grew and he could afford to, in the late 60s, they had these horrible things called gambling junkets to Las Vegas, where 120 men would jump on an airplane from Philadelphia or New York, perhaps, and fly to Las Vegas for four days of debauchery, uh, mostly golf and gambling and Long story short, my father got owned over his head, uh, lost too much money. And in the early 70s, when I was in high school, they came to my house and said, you know, where's your dad? And my father was at work. And I said, my father's at work. And they sat there patiently, came home, they talked to him. And I had no idea what was going on, but it was the beginning of my, my career because uh, they said, my father, you owe X thousands of dollars. And how do you intend to pay us? He didn't have the funds to pay him. But he said, I can pay you. Just give me time. I make money. I'll pay you back. They said to my father, you know, you're a small businessman. Why don't you go work for us on this side? You must have other people like you. And that was what that meant was like you. Other people gamble too much. Of course, all his friends gamble too much. So he ended up going in the gambling business as a junket rep for the, uh, I think it was the Frontier of the Tropicana Hotel in 1970. So I was 14 years old. Um, in the summers, I helped my dad. I was very close to my father. Um, he was an amazingly interesting person to be around. He was fun. He was very smart. He was he was terrific. And I helped my dad on the weekends and nights helping organize. This became quite, as usual, my father, he took it from a small business to a rather large business inside a year. He was chartering 
DC tens in those days with 150, 200 people and stop in Chicago and on Las Vegas. And what started as a way to pay back as bills became a really lucrative business. Mm, uh, long story short, it became an amazing what he did with it. Unfortunately, like an alcoholic at the bar, when you're on gambling, you gamble more. So my father was a heavy smoker and he had the first of his heart attacks. I believe it was 1973 or four. I just finished high school. And I was supposed to go to school in uh, uh, in Pennsylvania to a small liberal arts school. My father saw the price of the small liberal arts school and said, uh, you got a free scholarship uh, to go to any of the state schools, University of Pittsburgh or Penn State. So I went there. Uh, that first year, he had a major heart attack. I came home from school and uh, he was near death and uh, he survived it. But for about three months, I went back and forth, Las Vegas, kind of doing his job for him. Wow. Uh, I was all, about 19. And I realized that I could survive and do it. And I knew what to do from watching him for the previous three, four years. So I graduated school and went on to law school. And I was living at home in uh, 19, nine, 1978 when he had this third and final heart attack. It killed him. Uh, it was October 18 of 1978. <laughs> And he died that night um, from a heart attack. And his lifestyle was very unhealthy. He was young. He wasn't even 60. Mm -hmm. uh, we had no money. And so my mother had no skill set. She hadn't worked in 40 years. So I decided to go to Las Vegas and continue the business. And I did. And actually, <laughs> it became so lucrative. When I finished law school. Uh, my first job offer was a judge. I think it was $13,000 a year. I was making twice that a month in Las Vegas and in Puerto Rico. And wow. uh, the difference, my father, I could run the business, but I didn't have any habits. Um, so I saved all the money. And by the time I finished law school and, and graduated and passed the bar, uh, the idea of going to work for a judge for $13,000 seemed silly. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I bought a few, I bought a couple of travel agencies and started a nice little business along with the gambling. And it was doing quite well. And I got a call from uh, a guy, Neil Smythe, who ran <laughs> Caesars Palace at the time. And he said, I heard of you and I want to just meet you and talk to you. So I went to see, I went to have lunch with Mr. Smythe and he offered me a job working for, he was going to, he was about to take over a gaming business in Pennsylvania, in uh, New Jersey, Atlantic City just opened. And he offered me a job. I turned it down because the pay was inadequate. Um, he raised the pay. I went to Atlantic City. I met a guy, Neil, I met a guy named Bill Widener and I got, met a guy named um, um, Steve Hyde. In 1981, they were running the Brighton and soon to be Sands Hotel. Went to work for them in a regional capacity, running a sales force, sales team, and uh, never looked back. So 40 years later, I'm still at it, 42 years later. And um, <clears throat> Neil Smythe gave me great advice. He told me that, Rob, you may think you're making a lot of money as a working in the junket, but there's no future in that. Long term, that will go away. If you come on this side of the fence, people like you are going to find uh, I told Mike Milken the story. He said he referenced Mike Milken. I'd never heard of Mike Milken. He said the gambling business is going to change from a run by gangsters and questionable characters to a legitimate enterprise run by people like you, lawyers and business people. It was the best advice I ever got. And he said, you'll make a lot more money. You may become a millionaire working on this side of the aisle because we need people like you. I was 24. And Neil was uh, a brilliant friend, and he was absolutely right. And I've been doing it ever since. And I came to work in Las Vegas with Sheldon Allison in '95. After a two-year courtship, uh, Bill, a guy named Brad Stone, and myself moved to Las Vegas, and we started Las Vegas Sands Corp. Which we, the joke was, we we're hoping to become a 
uh, uh, had made a billion dollars selling Comdex. He said, I want to make another billion dollars. And I always just kid him. I said, we screwed up. We made an extra $60 billion. So we built Las Vegas Sands and uh, that's a long 25 year story, which I'm still at it. Sheldon, we lost him uh, a couple of years ago in January of 21 in Malibu and uh, a tremendous friend and mentor and visionary. But I've been doing this, I've been at the Sands since 95. And when he left, the board appointed me um, as CEO and chairman. And so that's a, a bridge story of a 40 year history. But it, you get the major points of my father. I would never be, in, I'd be a lawyer somewhere in Philadelphia, probably doing bankruptcy law uh, or something like that. Had it not been for my father's bad habits, but he was a brilliant father and a great friend. And uh, I did it out of necessity, but it morphed into something much bigger. Wow. Fascinating story. And thank you for sharing it. Um, you know, first first question that strikes me and, and probably a lot of our students also is, what were you doing in law school exactly? Was that kind of a fallback option or was it, well, you never, you never actually, practice I, law, right? No, my father had a theory. He said he was a working man who you know, had done well as an entrepreneur, but had no education. He valued education highly. He insisted we all went to college and, and beyond. And he was a complete believer in the, in the, in the education process. He was critical. Uh, he was raised an Orthodox Jew. He believed that you know, the cards were stacked in favor of the educated. So he wanted me to go to law school. He didn't understand higher education, understand the difference between one college and another. Uh, I was hoping to go to a place called Franklin and Marshall, but it was in those days like three thousand dollars, so it was beyond his grasp. But it, it worked today out. It's three thousand dollars of credit, probably. And today, who knows? Must be. I got bad news. I was just my son went to school. And I was laughing at the difference. But I think uh, my dad pushed me, and he had a funny saying. He said, "Become a lawyer because they make more money legally than people can steal illegally." Um, and he believed in education, so I was. When I went to, was to law school versus business school, I actually got into business school in Philadelphia too. And he pushed me to become a lawyer. I really had no real love of being a lawyer. And so it was it was a good mm -hmm. thing. I probably never would have practiced actually. Uh, I would have found something else. It never really, it didn't fascinate me. Have you kept up a bar membership at all? I did for about 20 years. And I finally realized I'm never going to practice law. I did it yeah. all through the 90s. I, I, I took the, you know, the, in those days you could take, I don't know how it is today. You could take New York, Pennsylvania, and Jersey. I did all three. It was the tri-state bar. Mm -hmm. And I passed. And, and I really thought I should keep it up. I felt it was the right thing to do. Around 2000, I realized I'm never going to practice law. <laughs> so why well, waste my money, my time? Right. Well, I, I want to circle back to um, to the first part of your story about how you first got involved in the business. And it seems like mm -hmm. you were going back and forth between Philly and, and Vegas mm -hmm. for quite a while before you ended up oh, just yeah. settling in Vegas. Was part of that just because you were on the fence about about uh, whether or not this was like your your career path that you wanted to settle in Vegas? Or was it other reasons? No, no, no. My coastal. No, it was simply no. I mean, in the seventies when I first started, yeah. No, mm -hmm. no, it was simply fear. I was my mm -hmm. father. Literally, when my father died, we had no money. And no, they took the house away from us. It was a wow. very fearful time. It was my sisters were in school, and we had no income. It was pure fear. I worked like an animal. I went back and forth every two weeks to Vegas for three years. I went to Reno. I grew the business into Reno. I grew it down to Puerto Rico. I went to London. I worked like an animal. Literally, I had no mm -hmm. life. I worked. In the mornings, I would I would do my my schoolwork and go to school, come around three o'clock and work till one in the morning on the business. I had one woman I paid as an assistant who did the day answer the phone. It was a real business with real yeah. obligations, and and we literally transported you know three four thousand people a month somewhere. And the deep it was in those days no computers, very very yeah. much phone dependent. 
So it was simply, honestly, out of necessity. And then what happened is, after three years after I graduated, it became, I woke up and I find time to think about it. I thought, I'm making a lot of money doing this. I was making, in those days, $300,000, $400,000 a year, which was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. My mother, I bought the house back. I took care of everybody. And I looked around, I thought, well, okay, it's very hard when you're 20, when you're 24 years old and you're making this much to go back to making, you know, $1,000 a month as a law clerk. Sure. And at that point, I made a decision that I might as well pursue this path. It wasn't a question of which place to live. It was simple. Uh, I wanted to live in Philadelphia, but then when Atlantic City opened, they offered me this job. I moved to Atlantic City because it, right. it was, I decided to make a real go of this. If you had told me I'd be doing it for four decades later, I probably would have laughed at you. Right. But in those days, I'll try it for a year or two. If it doesn't work out, I'll go back and become a lawyer. And where'd you get the business acumen? I mean, how, do, how does a 24-year-old just kind of figure out how to run a travel agency or a You know, you know a fear, <clears throat> fear is a wonderful motivator. When you're afraid you're not going to eat, and you're afraid you're not going to have a place to sleep. I was truly fearful. My sister, mm -hmm. no one, there was no one to do anything but go to school. My mother was incapable, wonderful woman, but never worked since she was a teenager. And she was also fearful. And we didn't know what to do. I mean, it's a wonderful thing when you have absolute fear of poverty and, and and not not having any, anything to fall back on. But I also knew my father, I watched what he had done. I knew just how the, I ran the business for him anyway, because mm -hmm. I, a lot of time, I knew just what to do. And the people in Las Vegas were very kind to me. They treated me respectfully. Even as a kid, I was like, you know, they used to laugh at me, come on, come on the, the lawyer. And they thought it was hilarious, the 23, 24. That's why I got the interview with Neil. I was, I was well known in Las Vegas as Gil's son, the kid who's a lawyer, who's running this business. Most of the guys were 60 year old guys with cigars and, and gamblers. <laughs> I was known, I sat by the pool reading law books and playing tennis. I was the antithesis of what they expected. When Neil met me, he said, what happened to you? How'd you end up here? And I told him, he started laughing, but I said, it's been, I'm very grateful. The, the city is providing income. I, I took the business. It was the same concept down to Puerto Rico and then on to Reno and up to London. London had casinos that time. It wasn't difficult. It was a very simple business. You brought right. gamblers out of, out of database you worked through it, you solicited people, and it was a very glamorous but very simple business to run. Mm, you you were basically trying to get people on trips to gamble and go home. It I wasn't mean, hard. Yeah. You charge you made money three ways. You made money, you charged them a commission to to again. I think in those days it was hundred dollars a head. They paid you a fee, then the casino paid you a fee for bringing them. And then you got a small piece of the if they paid their bills that you got a commission on the upside potential. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very lucrative Sales. business. Yeah. 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 Wow. And um, I guess, you know, something that you've probably thought about a lot, especially in the context of how you got into the business, you know, you mentioned you never gambled and it was never something that I, I, I to this day, I bet football games for, for, for laughable money. I find it's just yeah. amusing. I bet a football game. I don't gamble in a casino ever. No. And was it, was it ever, um, you know, something that was hard to grapple with when you yeah. saw, you know, your father's own addiction to gambling Yes, and, and getting exactly into the I never wanted to play cards. I never right. wanted to. I, I was very, I watched my father's life be destroyed by cigarettes and gambling. And I always said cigarettes are not a good thing and gambling is not a good thing. And, and, and people who in the business quickly figure out the only way to be in the gambling business is to be on this side of the table when you're dealing the cards. And also the business fascinated me. We gamble, I gamble huge amounts of money, but on a business deal. Mm -hmm. We're betting right now billions of dollars in New York and in Macau and Singapore and even in just lost a deal in Texas. So we gamble, but a gamble in a way that's a business uh, a savvy. The, to sit in the casino would bore me to death. It does has no interest to in me. Zero. Yeah. 
I watch and, a football game in about a couple hundred hours just for the, uh, the kibitz. It's it's not I know I don't have a gambling issue at all. Right. And when when you think about, you know, people who themselves might be addicted to gambling, have you um, have you worked in the, in terms of the business to try to help those people or to try to yeah, both, some of them? Yeah, I mean, the, both me and my company, my the company we're very we give we give a lot of money away to gambling addiction. It's a mm -hmm. terrible habit. And you know, gambling should be it, it it's not meant to be that's not what the purpose of it is be entertainment. So mm -hmm. we're no one, no one in our industry supports problem gambling. In fact, we run from it. And it's a mm -hmm. horrific, horrific thing for people who are addicted. It's like drugs, just like any addiction. It's a horrible thing. So we're very opposed to it. And I've always, I've actually had customers I've known in the years, friends. I said, you can't afford this. You're playing, you're over here. Just don't. I don't want you. We had a friend in California, a very a legendary gambler in, in the entertainment business. I banned him from our casino. Still a friend of mine this day. Mm -hmm. I said, you shouldn't be doing this. You can't, you, you can't, you, no one can afford to gamble like he gambled. And we've seen it over the years. So we're, we're strong believers and we spend a lot of money on anti-addiction programs. Mm -hmm. Are there any sort of um, internal controls that you've put in, maybe algorithms, or I'm just guessing something like that, that could kind of- You don't, you don't need an algorithm. You can watch mm -hmm. it, you can see yeah. it, and you throw those, and you tell those guys, we don't want you here. You can see if people can't afford to gamble. People are mm -hmm. over their head. You simply, the problem though is, like any addiction, they can find another source. Mm -hmm. So we can throw them out and we'll counsel them, offer them, but- the problem with addiction, gambling addiction, and even for young people who are addicted to sports betting, et cetera, is they always find another outlet. The only thing they realize they hit rock bottom, they come to terms with it and address it. Mm -hmm. It's a very serious problem. It's amazingly small part of our business. I mean, the amount of people addicted to gambling is is not very large, but it's a real problem for those who have it. It's a dreadful disease. Mm -hmm. I, I witnessed as a kid. I didn't know it those days. The same way alcoholism and drug addiction wasn't understood in the, when I was a kid. My father had a gambling addiction. We didn't understand. We just thought he liked to gamble. I mean, you know, some people like to go bowling. Some people like golf. He liked to gamble. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm actually studying with somebody now, a friend of our organization, the Jewish law and ethics when it comes to gambling. It's a fascinating topic because it's been around for thousands of years. You know, people used to race pigeon pigeons, and they would yeah. you know they would roll dice, and that was typically you know the way the way that things worked in, in ancient times. But there's a lot of considerations you know that are discussed throughout the literature, you know, on, the, on this subject. And one of the major questions is, you know, are you talking skill-based or are you talking something which is just by chance? And uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what, which do you think might, you know, which games, which particular things that you're betting on, you know, whether it's a poker game, you might have, you know, the best player in the world, there's some element of chance there versus, you know, a football game where it's not really chance, it's more just skill or betting on a horse, you know, who's the better horse? Um, do you do you see any ethical difference between those types of games? Very little. I mean, you, I. It's funny. Even people who are skilled and like some of the best. I have very good friends who bet poker, play poker, and play sports. Mm -hmm. I know some of the biggest. I know the biggest players, and most of them. The problem is, if they're very good poker, they end up losing the golf course. So they're very good <laughs> football. They're losing the blackjack. I found very little uh, belief. I don't, I've met a million people in my life. I'm a professional gambler. What that really means is they're just going broke slower. Right. Um, I have met, I meet all these young people. I meet them all the time. The time I, I bet sports for a living. I always kind of chuckle. And they always, they, I was at a wedding recently. And a kid in California, he came over and said, hey, you know, I, I'm a sports better. I said, great. He said, yeah, I make a living. I said, great. 
He said, you seem like you don't believe me. I said, no, I don't believe you. I said, I, I, no disrespect, but sports betting is really hard. You know why it's really hard? Because the guys who make the odds are better than you. And, and the way that things built today, even more today, it's, it was difficult years ago, but doable. Today, with the mathematics and the ability to access computers and to run, it, it's much more sophisticated. So the odds are very tough. Poker players can win because you're, it's like golf. You can win at poker. The problem with my poker buddies, and I got Doyle Brunson died yesterday. He was a brilliant friend of mine and a brilliant man. But the problem with most guys who play gamble for a living, like like Doyle, he'll tell you, be the first to tell you, him and Chipper used to, used to lose millions betting sports. You know, they always seem to find, the, the rule is that you find something you're good at, stick to it. But most professional gamblers I've known, even the real pros who play poker or the guys who bet sports, they always find a way in some of the gambling and it usually doesn't turn out well. I'm not a big believer. If my son told me I'm going to be a sports better or a poker player, I'd beg him not to do it. Mm -hmm. It's a bad way to spend your time. Would you want your kids to go into the business on your side of things? You know, my son and my daughter, but it's funny, neither my kids are not. My son's a real estate guy. He's much smarter than me and, and be much more successful. He's not going to be in the business because he, he's already, he's building, he's in the real estate business and very good at it. Um, my daughter's in the, in California, she's in the fried chicken business that owns franchises. Hmm. Neither one are going to be in this business. Would I like them to be in it? Uh, everybody should pursue their own interest. I, I don't, I wouldn't stop them, but I wouldn't, it's a hard, it's a wonderfully opportunistic business. If you love it and you like, I like it. I don't need to do it anymore. I don't need to work anymore. I just like to work. It's fun. It's mentally, it's, it's motivational for me. It's, it makes the, makes the day more interesting. You know, um, but my kids, they go their own way. They're both well-educated, both capable, and neither one chose the business. And it doesn't bother me, nor, nor do I care, which I think whatever makes them feel good and feel fulfilled, that's the right path. Where do you see the industry going in the short term and long term? Obviously, a lot of, you know, developments technologically, uh, yeah. a lot of markets opening up. COVID, you know, was a huge factor. Um, what's uh, What's the state of affairs? And the business is going to be far beyond any I ever could have been. Back in the in the 80s, you had two choices. You could work in Atlantic City or you work in Las Vegas. Those are the two, or Nevada. It, what's happened, the metamorphosis of gambling land-based is extraordinary. You see it in every state, just about in the country. You see it anywhere you go. It's, it's amazing to me. And uh, same thing with uh, online. Um, and the fact that uh, I was in London last week and to see the growth of this industry everywhere, online, poker, sports, land-based, it, it's it shocked me. And I don't see how it stops. Now that the politicians like the tax revenues, people like gambling, the ethical considerations that were around in the 80s and 90s are gone. People don't care. They get sports betting or, or land-based casino or whatever it is. It just, it, it seems to have endless uh uh, interest for people. So I don't think it diminishes if any, every area just keeps growing. Is it a good thing? I, you know, I, I don't know the answer if it's a good thing. For some people, it's just entertainment and fun. For some people, as you alluded to, it can be a, a, a problem. But uh, put in the right perspective, I'm a big believer in land-based casinos, lots of capital, lots of jobs, lots of protections against problem gambling, underage gambling, and addiction. I think they're the safest kind of gambling still. I think online it still is very risky. Yeah. And and obviously, you know, and we'll get to this part of the conversation in a couple of minutes about your Jewish heritage, but um, many of the, you know, major players, major characters in the gambling industry have been Jewish. Um, and, uh, you know, some very notable ones, Sheldon, as you mentioned, 
Um, what are your thoughts on on Jewish participation in the industry? Is is there something you attribute that to, um, or is it just a kind of a, you know, a, a, an accident? Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's it's not an accident. It's entrepreneurial. I mean, uh, all these guys, you know, whether you look at, look at Kerkorian, look at Steve Wynn, look at Sheldon, uh, yeah, dozens, even uh, even older fellows here in Las Vegas. Um, it's entrepreneurial, and it's also it was a, a path to making a living for a lot of people. And you know, in the days of uh, the 50s and 60s and 70s, all these guys, it, it was, you know, it wasn't a lot of ways to make money as a Jewish person. You can't go and mm -hmm. fry ham in those days. You could, it's changed, but let's face it, when I was a kid, all my all my aunts and uncles worked for the Jewish employment agency, worked for schools. They couldn't get jobs at Bitcoin. It was, it, that's the way it was. But I think uh, gambling was a very attractive path. Steve Wynn, like myself, for me, if you're sitting here, we laugh about it. Uh, the same thing. His father was a, a very, very big gambler. Uh, not, not, uh, not a good thing for his father. Steve got in the business like I did. His father kind of introduced him. His father died when we first met. You know, a thousand years ago, I told my story. He said, "Me and you have the same story. It's exactly that. Our, my father went broke in the bingo business and gambling, and Steve quit, quit score, finished school, and went into business, and then liked it. The one thing about it, it's very seductive. It's a great learning experience. It's very entrepreneurial. It's very interesting and by the way it can be anything from a small you know mom and pop casino locally to a multi-billion dollar place we have in singapore macau mm -hmm. um one thought also is while the jews and other ethnics here in the u.s are prevalent gamblers on both sides of the table if you go to asia first time i went to asia 40 years ago i had to laugh because i felt like philadelphia all over again everybody was smoking cigarettes and was drinking whiskey and gambling and the Chinese are of anybody, the biggest ethnic group to gamble, they love it. And you'll see in, in Macau or Singapore, you'll see dishwashers gamble next to billionaires. It's a really interesting thing. I, what I can't figure out is why it's so prevalent in the ethnics, but it's true. And and, uh, and if you go to Asia, you'll be shell-shocked. It's much more aggressive gambling and much more enjoyable for those people you ever could imagine at all levels. They'll bet $10 bills, they'll bet a million dollars. So the Jews aren't unique in terms of ethnics gambling. It's very common. Yeah. And also you should know that this industry, let's face it, was plagued by the underworld. And so it attracted Jews and Italians who were in the underworld. Right. In the, in the early days, there was only the money was coming through <clears throat> illegal illicit sources. So it was money was available through very difficult means. And that's only 50 years ago. It's only the last right. 50 years Mike Milken in the 80s revolutionized this industry and Wall Street became, you know, I always kid the guys at Goldman, you know, they they all got into it late, but when they figured out how, how lucrative it was, they got into it and they they liked it. It's, it's become a legitimate business, although when I first came to work, it was rough characters. I never thought I'd be in the gambling business because the people I met in the late 70s and 80s was not exactly the kind of people you want to sit down and have dinner with. They were scary right. people. Right. Yeah, I, I wasn't scary. I was, I was not going to, when I first went, I was very scared of it, but when I started making money, realizing you stay away from those people and you, but it was different today. It's the most, uh, today it's the most sanitized business in the world. But in those days it was very scary. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. You have some fascinating stories to share. If you, yes, I do. Time. <laughs> so what, what uh, advice would you give to our students and alumni? Maybe those who are considering, what kind of career they'd want to go into you know obviously you had life circumstances which led you to a different path yeah but um you know not everyone's going to have that but what do you think just in general would be the most important piece of advice that you've learned in your career to uh, to give to somebody at that stage of life coming out of school 
you know, I, I meet a lot of young people and I, it's really funny when they tell me about their, their passion or their vision. I always find that kind of humorous. I don't tell them I find it, but I kind of, kind of chuckle to myself. You know, the first thing you should ask yourself is what are your goals? <clears throat> is your goal to be in something you're passionate or whatever you got 23 old guys say, my vision, I'm thinking how much vision can you have at 23? And my vision was putting food on the table and paying the bills. So my vision was dictated by necessity. But my point is, I think my first thing I ask myself is, what is your goal? Is your goal to make money? Is your goal to have a nice, stable career? Take risks? How much appetite do you have? Look for opportunity. Don't look for your vision, your passion. If your passion, by the way, is, is playing golf, God bless you. It's a great passion. It just doesn't pay well. You know, I, I play golf. These young kids are amazing. They're 28 and they all want to be on the tour. And I, I have a lot of respect for them, but for every Colin Morikawa at the golf course, there's a thousand guys who are in the seventies, but are not going to be make a living. So I, I told the young golf pro, he told me it's his passion. I said, well, but do you want to make money? Because being a golf pro is usually not a path to riches. And he was confused by it, but it's my passion. I said, but maybe your passion and your earning capacity should be considered. So my point is, I looked at opportunity as a young guy. I, I would have, I could have become a lawyer. I could have become a, a, a gambling person. I opted for the opportunistic road. And some people I think today have this fantasy that what they like doing, what they're passionate about is the only path. I don't know. I agree with that. You know, my son went to a school and they came out and he was in real estate and he hit the great recession of 2009. He said, what do I do now? I got fired from a major real, I said, go back to business school, get a degree and figure it out. While he's there, he became very interested in real estate. And I said, do you love real estate? He said, no, but I think it's a great business. And he was very much like me. He said, dad, this is a, this is a good business. That I can I can see myself making a lot of money in real estate. I like it. And he's very talented. He's a, bright, a gifted kid. Not a kid, he's a, he's a man now. But my point is, I think young people have to ask themselves, what is your, what is your goal? If your goals are consistent, if you love doing something, fine. Is it going to provide the income you want to, to make a living? That's the second concern. You've got to ask yourself, Bolt, this idea that my vision is, I, I, I want to be a, I don't know, a jockey. Okay. Other jobs being a jockey. Other jobs being a shoemaker. Or you want to be a lawyer. Most of my friends went to law school 40 years later, hate it. They regret it deeply. It's not been that fun or that exciting or even that lucrative for a lot of them. So I think I tell young people, Ask yourself what's important to you and take a hard look at yourself. Don't let other people tell you, you know, pursue. When I hear that, oh, pursue your passion. Okay. Does your passion is going to provide you an income you can live with? Uh, being a rabbi, it's obviously a passion for you. You've made a decision. It's what you want to be. That's great. You know who you are. Not everyone knows who they are. I think a lot of people take too much advice from the, the internet or from their friends, their mother and father. They got to dig deep, ask themselves, what's important to you? Great advice. Yeah. And relate very much. I mean, I, I made the decision to leave law to do this. So, yeah. I mean, and that's you know. a passion you have. And you knew exactly what the economics were and you chose yeah. it. That's fine. That's right. I applaud that. I just feel so many kids, they don't know themselves. They don't dig deep and ask themselves what's important. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you, Rob. So sure. we'd love to hear a little bit about what being Jewish means to you. It's a question that everyone obviously answers yeah. differently, but uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, identity and, and how that's affected your life. Well, I, I'll be, I'll also tell you, I had another, this is another confusing one. I'll tell you that my son, excuse me one second, call you back in 10 minutes. Okay. So I grew up in a very confused household. <clears throat> I mentioned my father was the, my, my grandfather was a cantor. My grandmother was a seamstress. They came very poor from Russia. 
My father was raised extremely Jewish, Orthodox. And of course, uh, he was pampered son. They loved him. He lived at home until he was in his 30s. He met my, my mother and fell deeply in love. First wife, only wife. But one small problem. She was Shiksa. She wasn't Jewish. Made my grandparents crazy. They disowned him. <clears throat> she married her, had two kids. My mother converted, became a very religious Jew, ironically. My father, who was raised Orthodox, gave up religion. They said the whole thing's ridiculous. That They sat shiva for him when they married my mother, and they declared him dead. And my mother came the stalwart Jew in the family. It's pretty, she became president of sisterhood. She spoke Yiddish. She became more Jewish than my, my Orthodox father. So I was raised in a very confused environment. I pledged to myself I wouldn't repeat that because I felt it was, I liked being Jewish. I've always enjoyed the, the authenticity of the religion. I, I've enjoyed being a, being a Jew. Uh, I married a Jewish girl. I married 42 years. I've raised two Jewish kids. Uh, we're very, I wouldn't call us orthodox. I wouldn't call us deeply religious, but we support the temple. We certainly go to services. Both my kids were born bat mitzvah. I'm a believer. I think religion is a wonderful thing to have belief and faith. It takes you through the hard times and the good times. It keeps you stable. So I'm a much, very much a believer in Judaism and very much a believer in the faith. My mother, ironically, was the one who really instilled in me. She had come from a Protestant background. And she said, the Jews have it right. Mm -hmm. She became very much a believer, uh, much to her regret for my father. <laughs> he left the, uh, he was, he stopped practicing. And my mother would go to services with us. When I was bar mitzvah, my, my, the rabbi lived two doors down from me. And my father, he told me, your father knows the prayers and speaks Hebrew way better than me. So how, how did your mother get so inspired into it? My mother just felt like she, she liked my grandparents. They talked about it. She became a convert early. She went deep into it. The, the funny part was, as she got deeper into religion, my father became more, he said, she's crazy. She's become like a real Jew. And he said, what's wrong with you? And my father became funny. He became not an atheist. He became very disenchanted with, with religion in the sense that he felt anything could drive my parents to pronounce him dead and said Shiva was just evil. He didn't, he didn't accept it. It bothered him. But, but I will say my father would joke about it, but he was much more Jewish than he ever wanted to admit. Mm -hmm. He also was raised in a, he worked in a very highly anti-Semitic environment. One of his businesses was roofing. I used to go with him to jobs as a kid. I'll never forget being my father one time when, you know, we was pitching a job and the guy said, you know, Mr. he called himself Gill Construction. He said, Mr. Gilbert, you'll get the job because the other guy, Bidden, is a Jew. We'd never give it to a Jew. Mm, wow. Got in the car, my father said to me, this was 1960-something. He said, always remember, Rob, you're Jewish, but it's, it's a big burden sometimes because a lot of people don't like us. My father was also the first person I met who was completely colorblind. He thought, you know, black people had no problem whatsoever. He was a big believer in equal opportunity. He always said the black man got a bad shake in this country. He said they deserve better. Big believer, and he was a really interesting. My father was very bright and ahead of his time. He had a real passion for people. It sounds like he still continues to inspire you decades uh, later. All the, all the time. I think about him all the time. He was, he was exceptional, really ex exceptionally bright, uh, gifted, flawed to some degree, but very inspirational. I wish he could have seen my, uh, my success. I'm sure he's proud. And thank you, Rob. So. so we've we've reached our uh, yep. our, our rapid it. rapid fire round. Are you yes. ready? We're gonna oh, rapid, do a, oh we're not done. We keep going. We're not now. done yet. We're gonna do rapid okay. fire round one to two word answers. Okay, okay. So just a little Shoot. fun so our students get to know you a little better. Okay, favorite place to vacation? Oof. Paris. TV series you're watching now. Oh, Peaky Blinders obsessed. Favorite movie of all time. 
Probably Butch Cassidy. Okay. Uh, favorite Godfather movie? Uh, I love one and two. I can't differentiate. They're both okay. brilliant. Yeah. I just thought of that. If, you, mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned Reno before. I had to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, I love De Niro, and I, but they're both great. One and two are amazing. First thing you do every morning? Uh, drink a glass of water and walk my dogs after coffee. Uh, favorite musician or favorite musical artist? Probably, I'm a very musical, I'm crazy about Bob Dylan. Okay, yeah, Most great. Nice, nice, nice Jewish He's boy. Doing, yeah, yeah. I just listened to Blonde on Blonde last week. Brilliant. They're one of the greatest things ever. And I'm, I'm also a Beatles fan, but Dylan is yeah. special. Special. Um, favorite, uh, it, well, I know you don't gamble, but if you if you would walk into a casino, what game would you play? Probably Baccarat. It's a good game to, to win if you're going to play. If you're going to gamble, Baccarat, it, it, it eliminates the, you can actually win a Baccarat. Favorite Jewish food? Oh, my God. Kibilta fish. Wow. Okay. Favorite, Jew, favorite Jewish holiday? Uh, Pesach. Pesach. That's a popular one. And finally, oh. one word you associate with being Jewish. Goodness. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Rob, for joining us this afternoon. It's been an honor. Thank you to our students and alumni listening out there. This is Rabbi Matt Rosenberg with JGSI and the Schmooze. Everyone have a wonderful afternoon. Take care. Thanks, Robert. Be well.